This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Hello and welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I'm Tracy Welbrink, a pediatric intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital and co-director of Open Pediatrics. It is my pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Robert Tasker. Dr. Tasker is editor-in-chief of the journal Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, founding chair of neurocritical care at Boston Children's Hospital, and professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so glad to have you back in the studio uh, after so many years. And I guess to get started, I've known you for a long time, Robert, and one thing that I've always appreciated about you is your desire to work with scholars from all training levels and backgrounds to help them improve the quality of their writing and hopefully lead to scholarly publications. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit of what you're doing on a larger scale now as editor of the journal. Thank you, Tracy. I mean, it comes down to a couple of main areas. What I'm trying to do is help young people write and produce product that readers will want to read. Right from the start of my term of office, I had back in March 2021, that article about writing a 3,000-word clinical research report. It was not my sort of invention. It was what I was taught at the British Medical Journal when I was serving there as an editor of one of their journals. You know, how do you write and structure an article? And there's a formula, and you will find it in that article. It's a 2557 or 2775, and that's the number of paragraphs needed in the article. And I go into what needs to be in each of the paragraphs, and it's fairly straightforward. Uh, Howard Bauchner, who also did the editor's course at the BMJ, took that method to JAMA, and you can find a version of that method in the guidelines at JAMA. And so we've got a PCCM version. That's the first thing that I started with. And then there have been a few other things. In April 2021, how to write a PCCM narrative, how to write a letter to the editor, and how to write correspondence and the guidance on that. August 2022, a bit more about materials such as randomized controlled trials that come our way and a few other things. In October 2023, uh, how to use references. But I guess we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I have to say I really appreciate those articles because they are phenomenal pieces of work that I can send to my mentees to say, start here and uh, let's discuss it once you get into it. And so we all appreciate you doing that. And I think they've been very valuable to a lot of people. So it's, um, I've looked at the alt metrics. It's what I call a slow burner. It's never going to go viral, but it's there as a resource. And if you go to the PCCM website, you can get a free copy of it. You don't need to uh, go to the library or purchase it or anything like that. It's there available for anyone who wants that material. Fantastic. Well, I have to say, I probably am skewing your alt metrics a little bit. Because it's free, I freely send that along <laughs> to my mentees, and I'm not ch uh, <laughs> giving you a tick box for every time that they're using it. But maybe I'll start sending the link so that we can record that a little bit more effectively. 
What's next? What's beyond your October 2023 how-to guide? What's your next one that you're going to tackle? So there are a few things. One, I want to tackle how editorials, commentaries, and what I call ephemera are written and what should be in them. Uh, what is the content, what we should be providing for readers, and why they're a good read. Many people may not know, but PCCM probably presents 90% of all the editorial material on pediatric critical care medicine. So to get leaders in the field discussing papers, commenting on recent randomized controlled trials, I think PCCM is the go-to journal, but I'm biased. <laughs> Absolutely. But I have to admit, you know, you're right. You read these articles and you always sit there and go, I wonder what the experts really think about this article. And so the fact that you do that for so many of the highest yield articles, I think is absolutely incredible. And so thank you for doing that. So we did at the end of last year, end of 2022, you may remember the first ABC trials that were published in JAMA, the step up and the step down of non-invasive support after extubation or before extubation. So we got the authors of the trials to write a commentary of what they do now. They've done the trial. What do they do now? And then I got Alex Rotter, Martin Knaber, Steve Schein. The three of them, they had written material in PCCM about their view. And I said, you've now got the trial. What do you think of the trial? And so I put that together as a pro-con symposium. And with, there are a few trials that are coming up in the next year that we're also going to do the same format again. Fantastic. Well, we will all be looking out for those. That's amazing. And kind of on a related note, I'm curious as you're talking about helping people get their scholarly works published, you're talking about alternative ways that we can get our work and our opinions out there. I'm curious what other strategies, in addition to obviously reading your how-to guides, that you might have for others to get their scholarly works published? How can they get involved in writing editorials or correspondence or sort of being part and contributing to this community? That's a difficult question. I think if you really want to get involved in writing, there's no way around it except for reading. So if you're not reading, you're not going to be able to write. If you're not knowing what is the contemporary narrative within pediatric critical care, and again, an unashamed bias here, if you're not reading PCCM, you're going to be struggling writing for PCCM partly because you won't have an idea as to what the current or contemporary discussion is. I sort of get ahead of myself in that I know what's coming out in March 2024, and I always think it's already out, but it isn't. But, you know, you have to keep up to date with our content. So I think that's the first thing, read. In the October issue, there's a whole article about chats, GPT, the sort of generative artificial intelligence, and I've taken a particular stance looking at references. And we're now fact-checking references. If you like, I'm like your PhD supervisor or master's supervisor when you've handed in your draft. And in the old days, I would have expected someone who was working for me to come with their draft plus all the papers that they're citing, and we would fact-check and look through. And nowadays, you know, there are more efficient ways of doing it. 
And what I've tried to do in this October article is focus on what is the new level of writing that's required and the level of engagement to show that you know the field, you're up to date, you're contemporary, and you've engaged with the references. So read, engage with the material, and expect to have full discussions with your supervisors. So just as young writers need to get and write, it's also, I think, that supervisors need to engage. Absolutely. And I wonder if you could provide us an example of what you mean by, I know because I listened to your talk yesterday about this, so I'm wondering for our audiences out there that weren't in the room when you were discussing the concept of actually reading all of the references versus citing them based on abstracts and titles, if you could go a little further and give some guidance maybe to the mentors out there of what they should be expecting to do for their learners and what their learners should be bringing to their mentors. So the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors sort of assume that if you are quoting a reference that you have read it and you know that's a discipline you need to go beyond the title beyond the abstract and read the whole thing and for me as I fact check things I see anomalies I also sometimes come to the conclusion that the paper that's being cited is also wrong and you know it shouldn't be quoted so yes have to have a look at this. I'm still an old style writer in that I collect all the papers together and so that I can flick through them. I haven't found a decent electronic method for dealing with that as an alternative. And I think having a discussion with your supervisor or mentee and going through these, uh, one of the mistakes I see is that someone's made an observation and it occurs 15% of the time, and they see in other papers, people have quoted a percentage of 20%, 25%, or 30%, and you just see written our series, there's a lower percentage. But then when you go and check the papers and look at the proportions, numerator and denominator, and compare it with the article, there is no difference when you do a statistical test. So it, it's... I don't want to say it's lazy, but scientific writing is about rigor. And for me as editor, I want readers to trust the material that they're reading. It's the brand. Well, as long as it's got my name on it, that's the brand. It's uh, as I pass on the baton to the next person, that will uh, be up to them to decide. Absolutely. And I think what you're describing is you know, so much in line with what you described earlier, being up to date, being able to critically appraise literature. And it's so important to find a good mentor that really challenges you to do that. And as both a mentor and a scholar, it's it's nice to, on the side of being a mentor, to, to expect that of your trainee and to put that forth and to actually set those expectations out loud. And so having your backing, I think, is really crucial to those conversations. And I think hopefully we'll encourage that curiosity. It is painful. I can remember my first paper that I wrote, and I used to sit with two mentors, and we would spend about 30 minutes discussing one sentence. And I would come out of that so sort of shell-shocked and upset that, you know, how is it that I've spent 30 minutes thinking about one sentence and deciding where, whether or not a word should be in the sentence? 
Fortunately, things aren't quite like that nowadays. But ultimately, young people appreciate that degree of mentorship and supervision. Mm -hmm. Your paper is out there, as you said, your name's on it, you want it to be good, and that academic rigor will take you far. Now, speaking of academic rigor, there are a lot of things being discussed about generative AI in pretty much every dimension of our life. We know that AI has a lot of pitfalls, including hallucinations, other inaccuracies, and all of these things that you know, you're describing kind of go against the rigor. I'm curious what guidance you have to offer in terms of using AI potentially for scholarly work. In particular, should we use it? If so, how? And what's the view that journals are taking right now with the use of generative AI for scholarly work? So perhaps it's worth thinking about how our universities consider its use. So the two universities that I'm involved with, Harvard and Cambridge University, if you are submitting work for a postgraduate degree using ChatGPT or any other equivalent AI process, is considered academic misconduct. That's if you're submitting PhD, master's, or an undergraduate dissertation. That is meant to be your original work. However, at Harvard, there's a sort of slight nuance to that, that if you are using or doing coursework, your course organizer is supposed to instruct you as to whether or not they expect you to not use ChatGPT, sort of use it as you scope a field before you write your own material or sort of have a mix. It's true to say that at journals, there hasn't been a view all around yet. And it's a topic of interest at all of the critical care journals. Critical care and the anesthesia and critical care medicine journal came out with a couple of articles in July talking about AI use. And one of the editorials suggested that we should use this opportunity to elevate our writing. I think in the next five years, there will be a whole generation of high school and university students who will be familiar with using ChatGPT. Now, the question is whether or not you envisage a journal being very similar to a PhD thesis or a master's thesis, or whether this is just background scoping work. I've always taken the view that what we publish in PCCM is equivalent and is indeed used in some people's PhDs and in some people's masters. And I haven't quite got my head around what we're going to do if people start declaring that they've used ChatGPT. So this is all in flux. I'm, I'm sure the Society of Critical Care Medicine journals will come up with a view, and as will other journals. It's a question of watch this space. I think that if you look at this month's issue of Critical Care Explorations, there's an article about CRAW, which is this other AI form, and a couple of investigators with high H indices have assessed ChatGPT-type produced material, and they say the text is okay, but the references are not okay. And, of course, what we require in PCCM are references to citations 
that tell readers the provenance of the idea that you're discussing, the contemporary narrative, and the contemporary questions about this. ChatGPT has a blind spot for material after September 2021. It has a blind spot for material with no abstract. It has a blind spot for material that is not open access. And if you're not including that type of material, there's a problem. Oh, and I think you're bringing up so many important considerations for the use of generative AI, specifically what the model hasn't been trained on. And the fact that the model doesn't necessarily know where it's getting the information from, it just knows it has the information and putting it together in a way that maybe a scholar wouldn't put it together and or not being able to link directly to the statements that it's being said is a true problem. And you can ask it to generate references, but they're most of the time not accurate. And I think this really is something that people that are trying to use ChatGPT for any part of their scholarly manuscript should be aware of. So this situation may change. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was reading around yeah. for my editorial piece, it's clear that there are some places where they're developing plugins to contemporary PubMed to feed into the AI. Yeah. So, you know, within five years, that blind spot will be fixed. But again, will it have read the articles? So part of what my article is about is why not try and engage readers and show them that you've read the reference and why it's important, why you're pointing it out to readers. Absolutely. I think you're, you're spot on. And I kind of think many have described this chat GPT as kind of like your digital assistant. It can help you maybe by double checking that you're not missing big, important information that you need to go and do some research on that topic or, you know, making sure that there's not a big gap in what you're describing, but that it's not a substitute of, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, knowing the literature, being able to appropriately cite it having read that, and this generative AI is going to get better. We know that as these models are learned and are training, um, they're going to get smarter, they're going to get better. It's going to be harder to spot, I think, the differences when we're using ChatGPT versus someone's scholarly work. And so I think that this issue is something we're going to grapple with for a long time. But I think the, the principles that you've put forth here, I think, are really good salient points for writers to be thinking about and to be incorporating. In. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I was brought up on a traditional sort of scientific approach to scholarly work. So in a laboratory, the senior author or the head would write the introduction. They would know the context. They would know the hypothesis and the aims. The methods and the results of the studies or whatever observations are being made are down to the student, the research student, so that's your focus. Well, that's my focus. You get that cleared. And then the senior author and the researcher then get together and dissect, you know, what are the three observations? Paragraph one of the discussion, paragraphs two, three, and four, observation one, two, and three in the context of the current literature. And then paragraph five is the limitations of the data. Paragraph six is where is this going in the future? Paragraph seven is the uh, sort of conclusion or summary. But there you go. That's, that's the formula. The secret sauce right there. <laughs> 
That's great. No, and I think this, again, is just speaking to this whole way of how do we fit in line with what the recommendations are for scholarly work. And so you uh, very beautifully, in a, such a concise way, express that clearly. I'm wondering if you in the journal, just kind of thinking about the last question I have about AI is, I know that there are some journals that are requiring individuals to explicitly write how they used AI, the explicit prompts that they've used to better judge how much of a manuscript might potentially have been written by generative AI. And do you see that as something that's potentially coming down to peace critical care medicine? Or is that something that other journal editors are, are talking about? Or do you think that's not the case? Because as we mentioned, I think the challenge that I see for coming is that as these models get better, it's going to be harder to detect. You mentioned before the blind spot of 2021. So if someone only has articles that are listed before 2021, you know, that you might raise your eyebrow that this could be generated by ChatGPT. What are some of the ways that you're thinking of putting into place? And is this one mechanism of attestation that you can try to ensure that this is really the scholarly work of the writers? So that is going to come. It's going to come to all journals. If you look at my October article, there's a whole series of papers that have been published on this topic in Nature, discussing the role of AI, how it is used, what implications it has for generating systematic reviews, doing statistics on its own, even writing the paper, and how do we deal with that as a community. So it's not just PCCM and other critical care journals. This will affect all journals. And you know, that's in part the role of reviewers and editors to ensure that a journal can be trusted, its content can be trusted, and it has a brand. The alternative, of course, is material just gets generated, goes into MedArchive, and the reader has to become the reviewer and editor of the material that they're looking at. So I don't know whether MedArchive is going to have a statement I know that one of the signatories to MedArchive is the British Medical Journal. They've come out with a statement on ChatGPT. I think all journals are going to come up with something. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This problem is not going away and we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll probably have many more podcasts and, and talking about it. You know, the harder problem, of course, is for universities and what they're going to do with postgraduate degrees. And mm -hmm. they're using this in high schools and those students are going to have an expectation. Absolutely. And I mean, ChatGPT, you know, we're kind of bringing up a lot of the bad parts, but it can help accelerate the process for a lot of scholars in terms of being a starting place for some things or a double check. But I think when it comes down to scholarly work, we've got to hold ourselves to a different standard. And, and this standard is going to be evolving over, you know, the next yeah. few years. Well, if I could pivot and ask you a question about a different type of innovation, I'm curious, what other innovations related to the journal are upcoming? that you might be willing to share with the audience? Anything new that you're excited to be rolling out in the upcoming months or year? In November 2023 is a test case. It's a whole issue devoted to heart, cardiovascular medicine, and CICU. And I say it's a test case. We get a lot of material on cardiac intensive care, and I'm hoping that... 
we will be able to have an annual cardiac-themed issue that will coincide with the PCICS. This year, PCICS meeting. This year, Paul Ketia, who's been one of our senior associate editors, writes the foreword to the issue. I think it's a very nice issue. And I've written my editor's choices to sort of explain to non-CICU people material that's in the issue that they should also be looking at that will be of relevance. So, you know, it works both ways. There's material that CICU doctors should be looking at in the general, but there's also material that the generalist should be looking at in the CICU literature. So I, I point that out. So that that's one, the themed issue, and we will see if the experiment works. If people like it, they need to let me know. I'm hoping that uh, my CICU colleagues will like it. A couple of other things. I want to bring something that I'm calling probably PCCM Digest, connecting material. Say there's a lot of material that we've had over the last two years on pediatric ARDS. So connect it together, collect it. And then that also leads to the concept of collections. So why am I thinking about themed issues, digests, collections? I think that people read differently now. And I think that we're heading towards an electronic era. And it may be that the paper, the pages may disappear, which gives us an opportunity to collect material on a website. Those are the innovations as I see it really exciting. There's a lot coming down that we should be looking forward to. And you heard it from Dr. Tasker here. If you like this, let him know. And I assume if you don't like it, you'd like to hear as well. (laughs) Thank you so much for speaking to me today. I think we've covered a lot of ground uh, speaking about scholarly work and your recommendations and looking forward to your future articles that describe how to allow us to write better. And I appreciate our discussion about AI, and I feel like this is not our last one. We'll be continuing to have that, and I can't wait to see this November article. So thank you for taking the time to be here to talk with us today and look forward to our next podcast. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.